0: I served in Vietnam.
1: I served in Iraq.
0: No matter where you served or when, VA has benefits for veterans of every generation. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 45 of This Week at VA, the first episode of September. Today, we are going to talk to a Navy veteran that is exploring a career in hip-hop. We'll talk about the VA's most valuable and important resource. I'll play the remaining audio from Secretary Shulkin's remarks at the American Legion Convention. And, of course, we'll spotlight our Veteran of the Day. Before I do any of that, though, I want to provide a little information regarding benefits, VA resources, and response down to our community in Texas. First and foremost, if you're in, in any immediate danger, I imagine you're probably not listening to this podcast, but it's always important to note if you're important if you're in immediate danger, always call 911. If you're having a difficult time dealing with the disaster emotionally, Please call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255. Vet centers have deployed to support the veterans and their family in the Houston area, and the medical center in Houston has continued operations through this disaster. For those of you using the GI Bill, if the school you attend is temporarily closed due to the storm, VA will still consider your your attendance active and continuous. This means your payment will not be affected so long as your enrollment was submitted prior to the incident. If you're using the Montgomery GI Bill, you should continue to verify your attendance as usual, even if your school is temporarily closed. Please contact the Education Call Center at 1-888-442-4551 if you have any other questions about your GI Bill benefits. If your property has been impacted contact your insurance company as soon as possible and file a claim for damage or loss be wary of making hasty settlements on insurance claims until full and professional assessment of structural damage can be attained veterans who homes were adapted through the va specially adapted housing pro- grant program may have additional assistance available to help fund repairs contact the specially adapted housing program at 1-877-827-3702 for more information and now that the administrative notes are out of the way i do i do hope that everybody is safe down in houston and i want to thank everybody that has taken the opportunities they've had to contribute to the relief from hurricane harvey if you are looking for a way to contribute and are not in a position to literally go to Texas yourself, contact your veteran service organization of choice, whoever that may be, and just ask them how they're involved, how they're contributing, and I'm sure you can follow their lead on contributing uh, to the relief down in Texas. Last week, I played audio from Secretary Shulkin's remarks at the American Legion Convention. He described two of his five top priorities at VA— greater choice, and modernization. This week, I'm gonna play the other three, improving timeliness, focusing resources, and suicide the
3: prevention. The third of our fifth priorities is to improve the timeliness of our services. We all know about the wait time crisis that happened in Phoenix in 2014. That can never happen again. And we're working hard to make sure that no veteran with an urgent clinical need ever has to wait for care. And we're improving our wait times. We're gonna talk about that. We have to also improve our timeliness of appeals. You're gonna see that today when the president signs this bill. This is legislation that was last updated in the 1930s. And if we don't fix this, and that's why the president's gonna sign this today, we won't be able to get faster decisions to veterans on their appeals, and we just have to do that and we have to do better. And our disability claims, I'm gonna talk about how we have to do better on our timeliness of disability decisions as well. So on our wait times, what you may now know is, is that the VA is the only health system in the country that publishes its wait times in a public way for everyone to see. So if you wanna see what your wait time is at your local VA, it's available on our website. And by doing that, we're showing people where our problems are, where we fix the problems, and how we're gonna to continue to make progress because we update it every week. And we're focused on this and we're gonna continue to share our results as we make progress with you and the areas where we continue to struggle. So this is an example of how you can put in your zip code, what type of medical care you're looking to get and you can see your wait time for new appointments and for return appointments. We've also worked hard to get same day services in every one of our 168 major VA medical centers for primary care and mental health. So if you have an urgent clinical need, you will get it taken care of that day in our medical centers. And we're gonna be working to expand this to every one of our outpatient centers by the end of this year as well. In areas that we don't have enough healthcare professionals or the expertise, we are using telehealth. No other system in the country uses telehealth the way that the VA does. Over 700,000 veterans last year got their care through telehealth. You'll see here the president and I demonstrating new capabilities that we're introducing to allow telehealth to be available to you on your home computers, on your mobile phones, and we're continuing to push technology in a way that we believe will serve our veterans better and make care more accessible. I talked about disability claims. You may remember a couple years ago we had 611,000 disability claims that were waiting greater than 125 days for decisions. Today, we're at about 90,000, and that's still too many. Next month, this September, we're gonna be announcing a new way of using our disability system called a Decision Ready Claim to get veterans a decision in 30 days or less. And so you're gonna be seeing (laughs) us, thank you. This is part of our commitment to you to improve the timeliness of our services. And there there we have our decision-ready claims. And appeals modernization, you can see over 400,000 appeals pending. Today, it will take a veteran, if they filed a claim, six years to get a decision. That's unacceptable. That's why you're gonna see the president sign this new law today so we can fix that as well. Now the fourth of the fifth priorities is to actually focus our resources on things that matter more for veterans, to really double down on the things that you rely on that make a difference. So when we talk about strengthening foundational services, there are things that if there wasn't a VA, they just don't exist. In the private sector in the way that they need to for veterans. We're talking about care for PTSD, for traumatic brain injury, for blind rehabilitation, for spinal cord injury, for prosthetics and orthotics, uh, for military exposures, environmental exposures, and the list goes on about things that we know really make a difference that VA has the expertise in that doesn't exist in the private sector. So we're actually moving more money into those programs. We're doubling down on those strategies to really build world-class services across the country for things that matter to our veterans. You're also gonna see we're gonna work much closer with the Department of Defense. I talked about the IT systems coming together. Secretary Mattis and I have a commitment to really making sure that we're using our resources together in a way that makes sense for taxpayers, veterans, and active service members. And we have a lot more opportunity to work closer together, so stay tuned for some announcements that we're going to make about that. And last, we have to focus our resources by making sure we have the right people in the VA that need to be in the VA. What I wanted to talk about was something that we've been hearing from all of you. Uh, Making difficult decisions about who gets to work in the VA is tough. And so as it says here, dealing with issues, employee issues can be difficult, but not dealing with them can be worse. And we have experienced that over the past number of years. So we no longer are going to tolerate employees that don't share the values that we all share, who believe it's an honor and privilege to be able to serve our veterans. And we're moving those people out of the VA because they've lost their right to be able to work in the VA. Now, once again, we're committed to sharing our progress. So we publish, we're the only federal agency that publishes their disciplinary actions, who they fired on a public website that we update every week. Since January 20th of this year, when the president took over, we have removed over 500 employees from the VA who have lost the right to be able to serve our veterans. And we will continue to make sure that everybody understands that we're taking this very seriously. And that we're also looking to hire the very best that are out there to be able to come into the VA and to be able to serve the country. The fifth and final priority, and the only priority that I talk about that's a clinical priority, is to reduce veteran suicides. This is really a public health crisis. Now this is a crisis across America suicides in the general population have been increasing at alarming rates, but among veterans, even more concerning and even more serious. So you can see that while civilian suicides have gone up in the last 14 years by 23.9%, among veterans has gone up 31%. And you can see at the bottom line that for females, that this has really gone up even more considerably. So that's, that's of significant concern now what we can see here is is that if veterans are connected with the right care and getting help, that it makes a difference, it saves lives. For veterans that have been seen in the VA or getting their care in the VA, while suicide rates have gone up by 5.4% over the last 14 years, for veterans that did not get their care in the VA, it went up 38.4%. And take a look for women veterans, the very bottom line, Women that were getting care in the VA actually saw a decrease of 2.4% over the last 14 years, but women that were not getting care in the VA up 81.6%. So we recognize that not everybody's going to be able to get care in the VA. So we're working with community partners to make sure they understand how we can help get connected with veterans and the community but for all of you who are out there and if you see somebody who's isolated and needs help please know that that's why we're here we want you to connect them with the va this is really going to make a difference and save lives we've developed new tools called predictive modeling where we can actually predict those that may be at highest risk and we're not waiting until people take action, we're actually contacting them ahead of time and bringing them in and seeing if there's a way that we can help. And this is a tool that no one else in the country is using but VA and we're working with the Department of Defense. Our veterans crisis line earlier this year, so many people were calling, we weren't getting the 30% of the calls. That's unacceptable. We've hired 280 new veterans crisis line responders. We've opened up new centers across the country. Today, less than 1% of people aren't getting through, so the Veterans Crisis Line, which is open 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, is available. One of the first decisions I made, knowing that veteran suicide reduction is a priority, is I used my authority to make sure that those that were other than honorably discharged, not dishonorably discharged, other than honorably discharged, as you know many times for behavioral health issues, aren't out there without a place to get care because we see a very high suicide rate among those that are other than honorably. So I'm pleased to say that today, the VA will provide mental health services for those that are other than honorably discharged. We are not gonna leave any of these veterans without care. The other area that we're making great progress is reducing veteran homelessness. A 46% reduction over the last five years. We still have much more work to do, but we're not going to stop working at this until we make sure that there are no homeless veterans. And we're working with communities across the country, and one by one, beginning to eliminate veterans' homelessness from communities. We're also working to make sure that when people leave the service that they get jobs and they get good jobs. And now I'm pleased to say that while veteran unemployment five years ago was above 11 percent, today it's 3.6 percent lower than the general population. And the reason is employers know that the very best employees that they can get are veterans. These are the leaders in the community, they make great employees, and they're really extremely valuable to our employers. So we have a commitment now to hire a million veterans from our employers. We've just reached above the 600,000 mark and we'll continue to work at this to make sure every veteran has a great job. Today's feature
2: interview is with a Navy veteran that goes by Doc Todd. He served in the Navy as a corpsman and he is now pursuing a career in hip hop. He's going to talk to us about coping with his separation from his unit when he was medevaced his experience in music, and we'll even get to hear one of his songs at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Yeah, all right, we'll roll with Doc. Doc, we start every interview with each veteran at the same starting point, the one thing that we all have in common as veterans, and that's the decision to join the United States military. Bring us back to that day for you.
0: Man, it was in 2007. I was a corporate trainer um, opening up, restaurants across the United States. I was working for a company called Texas Day Brazil. It's like a Brazilian American style like churrascaria, kinda of like a fogo de It's it's a it's a special type of dining in the Brazilian culture, but it's it's uh it's really cool. And I was opening those up, you know, across the US and I was at the end of a tumultuous relationship, uh to say the least. I was I was probably twenty three years old, maybe twenty four. Um and I, I really, I, I joined, I made probably made $100,000. It was like 2000, late 2006, early 2007. And I was like, if I don't make a change in my life now, I'm going to be, you know, waiting tables when I'm 40, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I just didn't think that that was, you know, the path for me. I was making really, really good money. And I kind of impulsively joined the United States, Navy. to be completely honest. Um, it wasn't, I wasn't like someone who was spending a whole lot of time thinking about it or, you know, doing it for this reason or that reason. It was really about getting my life together. It was really about trying to be the best version of myself possibly be. And I, I knew the military was a part of that story. So, you know, my as far as pulling the trigger on, you know, signing paperwork, it was pretty impulsive. I, I got out of a, a, a two-year relationship with, um, with a girl, and, and I was having trouble at work, and I was questioning my future. And I went to the recruiting office and said, let's do this thing.
2: All right, and then you, um, so what led you, uh, I'm assuming by your nickname that you went in uh, as a doc, how did you get to that path?
0: So, like, I I was colorblind, actually, I I wanted to contract SWIC in the Navy, which is a special warfare combatant crewman, like, as a 24-year-old, it seemed like a really cool job, you know, fast boats, big guns, you know, drive the SEALs around. Um, you know, I thought it would, would be awesome. And, and during the MEPS process, I, I found out I was red, green, colorblind. I had no idea I was red, green, colorblind. Hmm. Um, I went into like this administrative room, kind of office, with like four desks in it. And they were like, you know, basically they said, you can't, you know, you can't come in Swick, and, you know, there's only about three or four things you can do. And here they are. And, um, you know, I guess they evaluated it, looking at my ASFAB and everything like that too. And, um, you know, they said you can be a supply guy. They didn't use that terminology, obviously. But then the postal, like a postal clerk, a undesignated seaman, a boatsman mate, or you can be a corpsman. And I did well on my ASPAP, but being red, green, colorblind, it was, they were evaluating the needs of the Navy at the time. Yeah. They were evaluating the jobs that I was eligible for. We are at a time of war. And of all the things that they presented me with, you know, the – the corpsman was, you know, it was like, I mean, it was like God was interjecting in my life. Like it was meant to be. I mean, I was like, yes, definitely Corman, 100%, you know, and they told, they kind of talked to me briefly about the difference in blue side and green side and, you know, being with the Marines versus being in the Navy. And I was like, yes, I, I actually flipped the coin in the office, um, you know, between uh, corpsman and, and supply and it actually, like, heads is this and tails is that. It actually landed on supply, and I, I used to do that sometimes. I would flip a coin to make a decision that was a meaningful one. That was a tough decision for me, but it, I just had a lot of implications in my life. Um, two very different paths, and, um, you know, it landed on supply, and I was like, hell no. And I, <laughs> <laughs> not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I, but, but I think that, that's one of the ways that you can find out how you feel about something is you can assign it to a, a side of a coin and it'll tell you how you feel about it because you know, you're going to react to the answer and deep down, you might not think you know what you want, but it'll help reveal what you really want. And in that particular instance for me, flipping a coin reveal what I really wanted to do out of those two options. And you know, I said, I want to be a doc, so let's go. And um, I signed my paperwork right there in the office.
2: Yeah. That's actually a really great point that, Even if – that whatever your reaction is to the result of the coin will tell you what you actually want. That's actually pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah, my buddy taught me that. Joe – I forget Joe's last name. I think it's Wendell. But um, he taught me that. He was one of the bartenders at Texas Day Brazil when I worked there. And he was like, if you ever want to know how you feel about something and you've got to choose between two things – just assign one to each side of the coin, flip the coin, and you don't have to do what it says, but it'll tell you how you feel about it. So yeah. I used it in that office and it changed my life right there.
2: Very cool. So is there a is there a story um, or an experience from your time in the service that you recall on often that you like sharing or maybe something you feel is sort of the epitome of your service, something you can share with us?
0: Yeah, I got i f I'll tell a funny story about one of our following. Um uh, Lance Corporal Charles S. Sharp. He was my roommate. He was killed in action in uh, Afghanistan on July 2nd, 2009. Uh, he was shot uh, in the neck with um, a 762, um no exit wound, um, and um, you know we were we were setting up in Dwyer um, to to go into theater because they had dropped leaflets in Dwyer's like this Air Force. Or helicopter base, or whatever. It's like a big giant sand dust palace in Afghanistan somewhere where they launch a bunch of helicopters and aircraft off from there to kind of go deeper into, you know, places of theater. And we're all kind of staged there, you know, playing spades, playing dominoes, like waiting to get on our way because, I mean, we were part of the largest helo born insertion of Marines into enemy territory since Vietnam. So it was, you know, a big deal. It was a big air insertion and, we're getting staged up in Dwyer. I think we were there for four or five days. I don't really remember exactly. And we met, you know, our Turks there, our interpreters there. And, um, you know, we're all playing cards, kind of smoking and joking. And we're out, um, playing dominoes behind, um, the tent or the bay or whatever you want to call it. I forget it now these days, but, uh, we're sitting on these picnic tables. And, um, this, this, um, this guy, Sharp, says to one of our interpreters that we just met, Guys, the interpreter's tatted up. He's wearing like a tank top or something underneath like his gear. And, um, Sharp goes, Where are you from? Like really, really slow. And the guy didn't answer and he did it again. Where are you from? And he kept doing it over and over again. And the guy goes, LA, dude. And I mean, he, and I'm trying to, because it's 2017, so like I can't tell the story how I really want to. Yeah. Like I really want to tell the story because Sharp was a great guy, but he was like, where are you from? And he did it like like eight or nine times. The guy let him do it. It was hilarious. And then finally he was like, L.A., dude. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was classic. Um, and there's a lot of funny stories from Sharp, man. He was a, he was a trip. Um, but, but we we're a really close group of guys and, um, that's one that sticks out to me right before we were going into, you know, essentially within an hour of us landing in our AO, we were, you know, we were kicked off a nine hour firefight and, you know, probably within 24 to 48 hours of that moment, you know, Sharp was dead within two days of that, yeah. that story. And it was just it's the last thing I remember about, it, you know?
2: Yeah. Tell us, uh, so wait, you so you enlisted in twenty twenty seven, two
0: thousand seven. Is that right? Yeah, two
2: thousand seven. Yep. Yeah, and uh, so uh, what year did you transition out?
0: Well, I did. So I was I, I kind of a unique story. I came in. There was a contract called a national call service contract when I was joining. You know, we we're in the heat of the war in Iraq and and gearing up. You know, our operations in Afghanistan. They needed bodies, and, you know, I I, I didn't know how I'd feel about the military. Look, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I I didn't know, so I I wanted to sign the shortest active duty contract possible. I knew I needed to turn my life around, didn't know if I'd love the military, knew I wanted to help and support what we were doing, but also wanted to give myself some options. I thought that, you know, for me, it was mostly about the discipline. It was mostly about shifting the direction of my life. It was mostly about supporting, you know, America and what we're doing. And, you know, I, I left some room to think like, hey, I could really, really hate this, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. And um you know, I think that's I think that in and of itself, and this is a tangent comment, is it's probably like what courage is all about because I, I thought there was a real possibility I would really, really hate the military because I'm more of a like artistic person. I like to do things my own way. I'm not like all about, you know, authority and discipline and structure. I'm kind of a free spirit. I'm kind of like, you know. But I knew I needed to do it. So I signed the shortest possible contract I could. It was 18 months of active duty. Now, I signed a nine-month extension. So it was essentially a contract that they designed at higher levels for people to come in to the military, go through their training commands, and pop once and get out. Hmm. It's exactly it's exactly what I did. Now, I signed a nine month extension. I, been, I ended up being on active duty almost three years. It was just under three years. And I went in, I did all my training commands. I did a TAD over at Dev Group for three months. I went to two specialty schools outside of my A school, and my C school. I went to cold weather medical school and i went to um tactical casualty combat care i did operational emergency medicine i did a lot of really awesome stuff like my 3 year career on active duty was like filled with significant stuff and then it was filled with a really significant deployment so and that was to afghanistan in 2009 i eas when i got back and it was like uh december of 2009 i eas but i took terminal leave like i would have got out yeah yeah in 2000 in, in the 2010. So it was like about two and a half, two and three quarter years on active duty. Then I did another three and a half years or whatever, three years and some change to make a total of six as a drilling reservist. And yeah. then the last two years of my contract, I was on IRR. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but that was what I came in under. I don't even know if they have those contracts anymore, but they had them in, they had them in 07.
2: Yeah. I, that's I found weird. the
0: longest, longest allowable extension when I was on active duty I signed the longest allowable extension that they had which was I believe nine months now I tried to cross over and become to a four-year contract there were a lot of people crossing over to four-year contracts that were on NCS and it changed the component of their reserve contract so when I was in by the time I got to where I wanted to cross over cross deck or whatever they were calling it it wasn't an option that was available for Corman anymore because the numbers of Corman in the reserves were low and the numbers of Corman on active duty were really high oh interesting so they didn't let, they didn't let me do it that was like one of those military things but i tried to i tried to stay in even longer um but but was unable to
2: yeah okay um so how, how do you how did you feel about your transition um there was uh you know you can answer this however you feel comfortable but you know a lot of veterans when they transition out in their first year or two they face some sort of uh emotional challenge or emotional crisis is that something that you experienced
0: i did man i was torn up yeah i, I did but it wasn't like the it wasn't like the typical like ptsd type stuff that you hear about like there's a lot of guys like we've had three guys from my unit that have uh not even it's way more than three it's probably closer to 10 if you look at, it at the battalion level we had We had 14 guys killed in action. We had an unbelievable amount of Purple Hearts. I don't remember the number. It was crazy. It was a a super kinetic deployment, um, very violent. I mean, it was uh, up until that point in Afghanistan, it was the most violent operation that had taken place in Afghanistan. We set up before Marja. It was like right before Marja, So we like teed up the southern Afghanistan for the folks that came in behind us. And, um, you know, that that's, that's, that's how it was, so it was significant. I had issues, but it wasn't from the fighting, like, to me. I mean, maybe it was, and I just don't know it, because we were in, I was in a ton of firefights. I, I saw IED blasts like crazy, dealt with dead bodies. My roommate was killed on the first day. Like, I dealt with a real deployment. Like, it was a, it was a real, real-deal deployment. And um, But I was so broken up about being medevac that I didn't even have time to be upset about anything else. So like all the all the um, issues that I had mentally revolved around being medevac and being taken out of the fight. Um, You know, I had I got pneumonia in both lungs, real bad. I had Q fever. Um, I was in ICU for seven days. I was intubated, um, and I was taken out of the fight. And I just felt like that. You know, it 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 hurt. Which this was all in my own head. I mean, I talked to my former company commander on the phone last night. He saw me on headline news live and talked to my sergeant major last night too, but I just felt like it, you know, alienated me from the guys I served with. Like I didn't come home on the bus, you know, I didn't I didn't um, you know, finish the drill, if you will. I got taken out of the fight, you know, and it was out of my control and I was in really, really bad shape. But it it tore me up, man. It really, really tore me up. It tore me up for a long time. Yeah. But I wasn't like thinking about I wasn't thinking about like the war and stuff like that or like what happened to Sharp and I respect and understand that people do but maybe it was selfishness maybe I was so caught up in my own you know story and my own feelings of you know I, I guess dare I say inadequacy because you know and guilt and shame because I didn't come home on the bus and I came home and you know an a, a air ambulance instead just really just broke me up man and that's all I could think about for a couple of years. I, I don't even really recall thinking about anything else for probably three or four years, although I was somehow living a life, I mean, but it wasn't a good one. And um, finally, I just got to the point where I was like, I can't, you know, 99.9% of the guys in my unit were still close. They, they know I was a war fighting doc, and I did my job. I was out there rolling with those guys, and they know who I am. And, you know, you can't control the thoughts of, you know, one or two people. And I was like, I can't, I can't live the rest of my life worried about what one or two people think I'm a chump because I was medevac because I wasn't shot or blown up. Like, you know, I can't live my life thinking about those two people. Um, and it was two people and I could name them, but I won't. And, you know, I just, I just, I decided to move on, you know, I decided to move on and it's still, it's still, um, it still hurts, man. It still hurts. There's part of me that still wants to go back over there,
2: yeah, and
0: do it again, and come back home on the bus, and you know. But the, the the story surrounding what happened was I probably already had pneumonia. We went out on an eight-hour patrol with first. It wasn't supposed to be eight hours. It was during the heat of the day. We took contact, um, not a lot of contact. I mean, when you start taking tons and tons and tons of contact, light contact, you're able to call it light contact, light. Like, we barely took contact on that patrol, but we did have to halt our operations for an IED, a control deck, and I think we took a little bit of light small on fire on the way back, but not a lot. But I was out for eight hours, and I had one MRE. I didn't eat breakfast, and I didn't I didn't prepare for being out there for eight hours. I had and, and the, as a corpsman, that's my fault. I had water, but I didn't have enough. And um, I came back. We got back to cop sharp. I threw up everything in my body. I threw up the MRE. I threw up all the water. I was already sick and I was out with QRF that day, too, and our patrol went over, so we had an IV blast go off about two and a half clicks out and this is right after we got back off that patrol and they're like, hey, doc, are you on QRF today? And I was like, oorah. And they're like, well, shit, gear back up. We, we got dead Marines, man. We got to roll. And um, I put my gear back on. We high it out two and a half more clicks. Uh, it was getting closer to like, you know, dusk, I guess, you know, around 637, but it was more like seven or eight at night in Afghanistan. It wasn't like like it is in the States. And uh, it was like probably eight or 830 even. And um, we get the gear back on. We go out there two and a half clicks, cording off the blast site. I go up to one of the sergeants, and I'm in really bad shape at this point. I mean, I was already sick. I was out for eight hours. I was I was in bad shape, and I said, "Man, I said, Sergeant, I said, I need to ride back in that truck. I don't think I'll make it back." And he goes, "Suck it up, Doc. We got dead Marines out here." I said, "Ooh, Sergeant." Um, they uh, they drugged me back the last 1,500 yards. They were dragging me back, and I was I had a rectal temp of 106 when they put me when they got me back to the BAS. I was I was fading in and out of consciousness, and then. Then I just started to get, you know, progressively worse from there as far as like my body was shutting down. You know, I had, you know, my body was eating muscle tissue to stay alive. I had like a really bad black rash on my body from head to toe outside of my genitalia and my face. And it was like black spots everywhere. And, you know, we don't have the kind of equipment out there in the field like you have in a medical facility. And, you um, our battalion surgeon Doc Quinn came up to me and he said, "Doc, I don't, I don't know what's going on with you, man, but we got to get you out of here." And um, I just remember how that just hurt, how that felt, and I felt immediately like I just felt like if I got medevac, I wasn't going to end up back there again. And I was already, it already hurt before I even got on the bird. It already hurt. And um, you know, I got on the bird. You know, I walked onto the bird. They, I was ambulatory. The PJs came in. The PJs were handling all of our medevacs because our LGs were so hot. So they were just sending in PJs. They weren't really sending in anybody else. And um, I got on the bird and I said, uh, or I didn't say anything. The, the medical folks on the bird said, hey, Doc, you want some morphine? I said, no. I said, no, I'm good. And they said, hey, Doc, you want some morphine? I was like, no, man, I'm not hurt like that. And they said, Doc, you want some morphine? I was like, "Run it." And, um. I felt my chest closing in. Nobody knew I had pneumonia. I didn't know I had pneumonia. We didn't know I had pneumonia in the field. People on the bird didn't know I had pneumonia. Well, when you have pneumonia in both lungs and they give you a respiratory depressant like morphine, that's not good. Yeah. And and in in this bad a shape that I was in, I literally felt my chest closing closing up. So I was in worse shape after I left than I was when I got on the the, the darn thing. So I I, I went into really bad respiratory distress. I had to be intubated. I had to, you know, have full-blown oxygen. I was in ICU off and on for the next, I don't know, I don't really have a good spectrum of time, but say four to seven days. Um, And then ultimately got taken back to the States. And that's when the the crap show started. I don't know if y'all, I'm going to try to say no cuss words on this podcast. (laughs) We appreciate it. uh, Yeah, but that's when when it got hard for me. Because, I mean, my guys were still over there fighting, and I'm, in Boston hospital about Bagram hospital, Germany, hospital of Germany and launch I'm in, you know, get medevac back to Andrews, you know, and then I go to Portsmouth Naval hospital and then I, I start getting better, you know, and I, and I'm like better, you know, like probably 40 days after that, but I'm back in the United States and my guys are still over there fighting and it just destroyed me, man. If I'm yeah. being hundred percent, it's really destroyed me. Um, but that was that was four or five years of you know having issues with that, and then having secondary issues with that. What what thinking about that 24/7 was doing to my life. And I just you know I just said you know enough. Like I can't you know there's nothing I can do to to, to change that. There's nothing I can do to go back in time and, and redraw the story in some way that I wanted because I was operating at such a high level out there. I was doing a really awesome job. You know, I was really doing good in a really important deployment. And then, you know, this happens and it, and it puts an asterisk on your entire military career or at least it did in my mind. And, um, you know, it was nice to talk to the company commander, you know, last night, of course, now he's a battalion commander. And it's been nice to get this story out because I think there's a lot more people like, went through something like i went through than i originally thought like i originally thought like i was kind of all alone you know
2: yeah so uh let's uh let's use that as a segue into your music you're a hip-hop artist you've uh that's how i got introduced to you i saw coverage on uh, on npr and a couple other uh outlets on um on combat medicine and in uh, other music that you've done to have you always been an artist or is that something is that a, um something you started after you got out
0: not always i mean well always not since i was like you know like really young but like since probably 14 or 15 and i was like the kid growing up like playing guitar in the mirror like playing like heavy metal like black sabbath and like metallica and pantera and stuff like that wishing i could be one of those guys and you know, that's like, that was like kind of my dream growing up. You know, some people want to be like football stars and all that. I, I always wanted to, you know, entertain people with music. You know, and I played sports growing up too, but, um, you know, I, I've always done it. I played in heavy metal bands and rock alternative bands from the time I was probably 13 or 14 until the time I was 22, um, 23. And, and I did hip hop as for fun in that time frame like I was just kind of like the heavy metal guitarist that could rap so it was like kind of a joke you know I would always like freestyle and do flows in high school but you know I'd be playing death metal on like Friday nights you know so it was kind of it was kind of funny but um you know I got real serious about hip-hop when I got in the service because I met some other guys from Detroit that you know were into hip-hop and I was kind of changing my my tastes were changing musically I was less and less interested in playing heavy, heavy metal and more and more interested in expressing myself you know through the written word and vocalist artists. So um, you know the transition was natural. Um, you know, and and I just I, I, I always had the kind of the ability and I grew up in a rough part of Memphis. Um, and I just you know the tra- so I met those guys from Detroit and we made an album while I was on active duty. So we, we created like a little hip hop group called last round and we made an album called United. It's like, it was the anthem of two eight, man. Like everybody in two eight was buffing that album United, like especially in echo company. Um, and we were talking about more pre-deployment stuff. Mostly we had some salt dogs in our unit that maybe had come from other units and had seen some real action interact. But most of the guys that were in our unit at that point at the ground level were there for the last deployment, but they weren't, they weren't like there in two eight for years or they didn't come from another unit who was like ripping and roaring in Iraq. Cause they had a Ramadi deployment and they said it was, they said it was pretty light. Like that was the deployment prior. So that was just, you know, battalions operating phases, you know, like two or three deployment phases and the, the O nine deployment to Afghanistan, I would say would be like the middle of a three deployment phase for two eight. So um, the Ramadi deployment, um, was was not highly kinetic. I think that they did lose one guy uh, in an IED. And so a lot of those guys weren't like super salty Marines like Fallujah Marines or Haditha Dam Marines or Nazaria Marines that we were all kind of like hadn't really done it yet. Now, we became those guys because our deployment was insane, like when we went to it. So, But we were talking about on that record about some of the thoughts of like, you know, pre-deployment and like knowing that we were going to go and do this big thing in Afghanistan. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, something that a lot of the guys had done before. So like we kind of captured that story and that feeling of, you know, knowing you're about to go do something significant, dangerous, and serious. And we made an album called United. It was awesome. It was awesome. Very well received, very niche, specialized album for, you know, 428, but, um and for Echo Company, but it was uh it was a good it was it was kind of the beginning the the true beginning of my hip-hop career
2: yeah tell us about uh, about combat medicine then
0: combat medicine is the opposite it's about the aftermath so i mean it's exactly the opposite and then i'm obviously reflecting on you know being someone who's fought in combat i'm reflecting on you know the actual experience it's no longer a i wonder what this is like it's like this is what this is like. (laughs) So there's so much stuff on combat medicine. That's about our deployment to Afghanistan and about firefights and about losing friends and about, you know, day-to-day life in Afghanistan. And, and a lot of it about the transition as well, because now I'm a veteran. So a lot of it's about, you know, how to, how to, how to get yourself back together mentally, just a lot, giving voice to the things that, you know, trigger pullers experience. I mean, like it's, I mean that's what it's designed to do, that's what it's about and it's about the transition, it's about mental health and you know, it's about addiction, it's about trauma, it's about violence. Um you know, it's it's about war, it's about all those things.
2: Yeah. The uh the 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 lead single off that um is uh not alone, is that right?
0: Yep. Yeah, and that features a guy who was in the service too. Binks was, I don't think he ever deployed. I don't know uh, his story. I don't want to speak on his military story, but uh, I know he was. He worked on Chinook helicopters in the Army. He was in for four years, um, so he was in also.
2: Yeah, if you send if you send me the the file of that show, we can we can uh, play it at the end of the episode. You down for that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll get you a file over. Cool. Uh,
2: who are and this is uh, this. is, I guess this question is probably a little bit more for me than the audience, but I'm sure there's some people interested. Who are some of your uh, inspirations in hip hop? What kind? Of, which MCs do you admire?
0: Um, my favorite right now is J Cole. Um, I love J Cole. I liked Lupe Fiasco a lot. You know, in that 2007 to like 2011 range. I think he got a little spacey later. Uh, in his career, and you know, I always, I always joke. You know, it's no disrespect, but like, if you're telling an inside joke that only you know the answer to, that's not intellect; that's lack of clarity. Right. Um, but like, there was, there was a time, there was a time in his career where he was really, really crafty, really, really intelligent, and on just a whole nother level lyrically than everybody else. And then sure. he got a little bit too, he got too in his own head, I think, um, or people gassed him up too much, but and he kind of got spacey, but I love J Cole. Um, I really, really like, um, Hobson, which most people aren't going to know who Hopson is. Um, Hobson is. yeah, he's, he's kind of preachy and angry, but man, he's good. And yeah. he's somebody that, that a lot of people don't know about. Um, you know, I, I think that there's some, there's some other guys that I really, really like. I, I do like Kendrick. I'm, I'm, I'm not as massive of a Kendrick fan, I think, as the rest of the world. Um, but I like him a lot. I think the, some of the other guys in TDE are very impressive. I like Schoolboy Q a lot and Absol. I think Absol's the best lyricist in TDE. Um, I think he's a better lyricist than Kendrick, to be honest. Um, you know, I, and as much as I know people hate Kanye, Kanye is a transcendent talent in hip-hop. He's unbelievable. Um, You know, from an atmospheric perspective, what he does and his ability to mix, engineer, master, produce, compose, write, um, he's just special. Um, And I liked Logic a lot for a long time before people really talked about Logic. And I'm I'm like, I'm not on the crescendo with Logic now. I'm kind of on my down my downfall with logic. Like, I'm kind of like let, liking him less, right? Um, than I used to. There's a guy named Locksmith that I like a lot. And I don't know if you've heard of Locksmith. Um, King Los, um, you know, really like those guys. And I like Philly Freeway a ton. And, um, but, but my biggest, my number one, Big Sean, I think is underrated. Um, but like my number one, The king to me, the king of the throne is J. Cole to me.
2: Very well. Uh, Doc, what's a skill set, talent, discipline, whatever you want to call it, that you learned from the military that you think is contributing to your success in music?
0: I think what, I mean, if you're asking kind of the biggest contributing factor to my success in music that comes from the military, I would say that, you know, I would say it's my story. Um, You know, I have, I have, even a unique story in the military and I have a, and I'm kind of wired uniquely from as a human perspective like my spirit and like the way that I the way that I see things in my lens and then to be given such a unique and and powerful military experience in such a short period of time is is what impacts my career because I mean lyrically it shapes it shapes completely what I did on combat medicine Um, I don't know, I don't know if it always will, um, you know, it'll always be a part of my music, but you know, we've had so much difficulty crossing over because of the the veteran piece, like, um, you know, and this is, this is coming from a humble place. I want you to know that, but the album has almost been more dismissed because of the fact that it's coming from a military place than it has been accepted it's been more accepted on the news from, from like a traditional news perspective. And the, the story is more accepted because what differentiates me in the veteran space is the music and what differentiates me in the music space is the veteran piece. But people aren't actually like talking about the album and like, damn, man, that's a, and I'm saying this humbly, but like, God, that's a good hip hop album. Like, like people aren't saying that. They're just like, Oh, it's a veteran rapper. You know, and it's like the, It's like the story stops there, and they haven't like dug into the content and the quality of the production, and the composition, and the lyrical, you know, care and, and, and artistic time that was taken with that, and the cadence, the flow, the delivery, the passion, the emotion, the sincerity, like. It, They're they're not. People aren't talking about how good the album is, and it's starting to. It's, it's, you know, and that sounds cocky, I know, but it's like I'm just being real. Like this has been the biggest barrier that we've had because it's just like, wow, this is a great score. This is cool because most of the time when this story comes out, the content doesn't back up the attention. As you get to the content, and the content is very average, and um, you know, I just really don't feel like that's the case with us, and. We need you know we need somebody on the music side to validate that if not I'm gonna be doing the same story over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again about the same song without anybody ever talking about the record um you know and that's that's my fear because. You know the guys that are digging into this stuff and that are really like in this record it's like really helping them a lot you know and that's what it's all about and that that's what matters but if we don't get crossover on the music side like i'm done like i can't continue to i spent forty thousand dollars uh promoting marketing and creating this project and we have a documentary coming out too and i've spent that money out of my own pocket I never claim PTSD disability with the VA. I'm not on. I'm not on PTSD disability with the VA. I have 10% service connection for my back. Um, you know, I left a full-time job to do this to try to help people. And you know, folks don't really buy music anymore. It's all streaming. So, like, this has been an unbelievable success. And I don't measure my success by uh, by human and fiscal and monetary standards. I measure by am I walking a step with something that's going to positively impact the world do i think that i'm you know being a good a good man of god a good man of character i think those are the things that matter and my aunt reminded me of that yesterday but but point blank period this is burning a hole in my pocket unbelievably like just massive loss of money and um and and i haven't there there seems to be no end in sight it's and it's not for lack of attention or lack of press it's just it's just not generating any money and um it's generating a lot of welfare and it's not generating any money. And I think until we get a real musical endorsement, until somebody on the music side comes out and says, Man, this is a real album. This is not just some cute veteran story. Like this guy's a real hip hop artist. And until we get that and, and until that happens, you know, it's it's not it's not gonna it's not gonna be what it has the potential to be because I had um I had to take a full time job two days ago. Um, and I mean, I've been working full time on this, you know, and, and trying to pour in my heart and soul and everything I have into it. And, um, it's just not financially sustainable. And and we have a great idea for the next project and we know that it's helping people. And, you know, I'm just being honest. I'm just trying to be real. I might, you know, this is who I am today. You know, I'll probably feel differently about it tomorrow, but you know, how I feel about it right now today is that it's been unbelievable and I hope to God, I'm prayerful that, you know, we can get, get something positive to happen that makes it sustainable. Does yeah. that make sense?
2: Absolutely. Doc, if someone's listening here when they're, when they're done with the interview and at the end of the show, they hear the the track never alone, uh, where, or I'm sorry, not alone. Uh, where, where can they find more of their music? How they can, how can they learn more about doc Todd?
0: Yeah. So they can, we've got a website called, uh, the real doc Um, and then we're we're also at the real dot Todd across all social stand- channels that's Twitter, Facebook, IG, um, and then you know we're on Spotify, we're on Apple Music, we're on, you know, Deezer, we're on Tidal. So anywhere where you get your music, you can find Combat Medicine. I'm I'm going to down to Nashville this week to record um, a mixtape called Mirrors in the Attic and um, we've got a really really excellent, you know, excellent concept lined up for our second album we can you know find a way to get it done i've had you know some initial talks with uh one record label in particular that i'll leave unnamed and, and we've had um some other some other talks with some possible individuals who are interested in us and, and maybe helping back us financially so you know hopefully those things happen um and, and you know we're, we're going to continue to fight we've been fighting like crazy and it's crazy because it's like this will be the first time so many people are here. And, like, we've been in the trenches fighting for this project for, like, almost a year now. And, um,
2: well,
0: you know, we're, we're just now it wasn't released until June, but we've been working hard on this thing for a long, long time. And, um you know, we, we're just we're just prayerful. I guess that's the best I could say.
2: All right. Doc Todd, thank you so much for joining me. It was uh, it was a pleasure to talking to you about your service and your your music. And uh, I used to do a podcast on hip hop. I used to do a podcast. Uh, a, my one of my first podcasts was Veteran Focus, and I talked to a lot of uh, uh, music artists in the veteran community. So I've seen the wide spectrum of, and I really uh, admire what you're doing, and, and I hope to see more from you in the future.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I really appreciate your time. with
3: We grew up together. We believed in something bigger than ourselves. The military took me to one side of the world and her to the other. And even though she was always the strong one, when we caught up years later, I found out she had fallen on some hard times. It was her call to make, but doing it together made all the difference. For veterans who are homeless or on the brink of homelessness, call 877-424-3838.
2: To go along with Secretary Shulkin's most important priority and to lead off Suicide Prevention Month, I want to reiterate how crucial the Veterans Crisis Line is. The Veterans Crisis Line connects veterans in crisis and their families and friends with qualified, caring Department of Veterans Affairs responders through a confidential, toll-free hotline, online chat, or text. Veterans and their loved ones can call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. You can chat online at veteranscrisisline.net or send a text message to 838-255 to receive confidential support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. I personally have used this service. I used their online chat from my mobile phone to report a friend that has expressed suicidal thoughts. They responded to me quickly and they showed empathy for both my friend and for me as well. Please do not overlook this resource. Contact the Veterans Crisis Line if you or a loved one needs to talk. The number again is 1-800-273-8255. In fact, I recommend putting it into your phone right now so that way, in the time of need, you have have it easily accessible. 1-800-273-8255. Today's Veteran of the Day is Women's Army Corps Veteran Alice Phillips. Alice enlisted in the Army when she was 21 years old. In an interview with the Veterans History Project, she fondly remembers her time in the military and how it shaped her. She joined the Army because she wanted an education in the medical field, particularly as a lab technician. Alice passed away on April 5, 2015. We honor her service. That wraps up episode 46. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Follow us on Twitter at D-E-P-T Vet Affairs for more stories from our community. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to end the episode with a song from our featured guest, Doc Todd. The track is called Not Alone. I hope you enjoy it and hope to see you all next week. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.
1: Struggle is real. Found a feast and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, procreating me. Broke out facilities and try to put an end to me, R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability yeah. Oh, I try so hard to have faith, I bow my head and I pray Lord, please lend me the strength to carry on and keep standing Stand up. How this life so demanding, so much pain, I least plan it I hurt each time I wait, but with you I'm not alone I'll probably be dead Cause I'll be taking every mail That the VA said Gave every shred Every last Threat of my identity Conquer my fragility Eliminate the enemy Deliver me God, From temptation Tell me that this life Is just a matrix Need a facelift Back to basics Vision six. I only feel alive When I hear the bass kick Oh, I try so hard to have faith. I bow my head And I pray Lord please let yeah. To carry on and keep standing yeah. How this life so demanding yeah. So much pain, I need plenty yeah. I heard each time I way